Episode 112 of the Talking Bollocks podcast brought to you by Go Loud. It's me, COB. It's me, Tardy Flower. And today we're joined by Ray Lane. Ray, how are you? Good. Good to be here. Yeah, thanks for coming into us. Oh, Appreciate great. it. So, Ray, what is your official title if you're going to introduce it to somebody? Now, Mr. Ray Lane. <laughs> <laughs> I was Lieutenant Colonel Ray Lane. But uh, you you drop your rank when you retire, believe it or not. Right. A lot of people don't know that. So it's uh, Mr. Ray Lane. Yeah, for now, because you're a civvy now. Civvy, civvy. Yeah. yeah, exactly, yeah. So, yeah. Ray, you are a retired bomb disposal expert? I, I'm, a, I'm a retired ordnance officer who did bomb disposal as part of his duty. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah. Would have been a big part of my life. Yeah. So that's what I was looking for, that there, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, so how we how we kick this one off then, Terence? Just straight into the story, how we started. Yeah. What was life like growing up? Yourself, right? Where are you from? What was life okay. like growing up? And I, then how you got into that carry on? <laughs> I was born in Fingless, on the north side. I don't often so, admit that now. You right? come from troubled areas. <laughs> yeah, so well, you're used to war zones yeah, and exactly, stuff like that. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and then uh, we moved then to Rathfarnham. My dad worked in Guinnesses. And I attended De La Salle Churchtown there, right? As national school for six years. And I got bet around the classroom for the six years, I'd say every day, every time a man could get me, right? Literally bounced off walls. And he, my schooling started every Monday morning and your man would have the, the six canes and he'd say, now, Ray, which one do you want this week? And that was it for six years. So it wasn't the happiest time in my life, but it, it, it taught me an awful lot. It taught me how to stand up for myself. And when I wanted something, I get it. I go for it. Right. And that helped me, I presume, you know, later on in, in, in the army. And I went into secondary school then and no problem. And then when I finished secondary school, I went to Trinity College uh, as a lab technician. And I entered into the life of university, <laughs> maybe too much. Right. Uh, I was involved in a pop group, um, had my hair down my back, joined the Communist Party of Ireland, um, <laughs> did everything that you shouldn't do. And then my mother one day said to me, this can't go on. And I said, what do you mean, Ma? She says, Ray, where are you going with this? Look at you. You're... She said, why can't you be like our next door neighbour? And I said, yeah, he's in the army. And she said, exactly. Why wouldn't you go for the cadets? I said, Mom, I'm trying to disband the army, mm-hmm. not join it. She said, if I put in the application for you, would you go for the interview? And I said, oh, uh, like we'd all do anything for our mother, I suppose. So I went for the interview. And... That interview went on for an hour and five minutes and I knew halfway into the interview it was going too well, right? So at the end of the, towards the end of the interview, the colonel in charge, there was eight of them on the table. He said to me, Mr. Lane, what have you got to offer the Defence Forces? And I said, this is my opportunity. And I said, well, the reason I'm here today is to find out what you've got to offer me. <laughs> and he looked at the youngest guy on the table and he said, Lieutenant Ryan, who became a great friend of mine, Tell Mr. Lane what we got. And he went on about overseas service, camaraderie, sport, da-da-da-da-da-da. And I just threw it all back. So about five weeks later, it was, it was a Friday, the Trinity Ball was on. I had the day off preparing for the ball. And a brown envelope came through the door. My mother brought it upstairs to me. And it, it was in Irish. I couldn't read it. And uh, I, she said, it's cadets. I know I didn't get it. She said, how could you get it, Ray, with an attitude like that? What are we going to do with you? So anyway, she goes downstairs. You know, there are times in life you can remember everything. Probably yeah. people were wearing the colour. I, I can still see her. And she came back up and she said, congratulations, you've reported to the colour on the 6th of June. And my father was in next door. So I said nothing. I went into him and said, I'm not going. I'm not going. And he says, Ray, all you have to do is go for a week. Your mother will be delighted with you. You tried and then you came home. So I said, all right. So now, remember, my hair was down here somewhere, right? So off I go with my dad on a Monday, arrive down to military college. <laughs> they'll brief us and they'll look after. My mother was so proud, and uh, you know, and they left and everything changed then. He says, over to the haircut. <laughs> so I go over to, to Noel over the barber, you see. And he says, what's your name? And I said, yeah. He says, tell me, what way would you like your hair? Now, he says, you can't have it like this. This is obvious in the army. I said, oh, yeah, just keep the locks. If you keep the locks, 
you know, and a bit of length at the back. That's great. So he said, that's okay. So and he, he just went, Both gone, gone yeah. completely. So I was in a state of shock. I, and, <laughs> and I was going out with a girl in Dublin at the time, right? And of course, we had no mobile phones back then. So we had queue to ring her. So I rang her after about four days. And I, I was doing A-levels in Kevin Street, right? So they had to release me to do the A-levels. So I arranged to meet her up in the famous clock in Cleary's. And I met her and she broke it off on the spot. <laughs> so Because I, of the hair? Yeah, 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 yeah. So I got on the bus, the half-ten bus, back to the Curragh that night. I'll never forget it. The only place I felt safe in then was the Curragh, where the rest of us were all looking the same. Why do they do that, right? Why do they shave the heads? Is it discipline? Clean, cleanliness and... and uh, sand. But they don't do that now, right? I do mean, they not? Ah, uh, not like that. It's up it happened, to you. It happened to my brother now, but that was about four, five years ago, probably. Ah, yeah. Well, no, no. They, they, That's like, recent enough. Like. No, they, they, no. They, I mean, they cut your hair short. But nowadays, it's everybody has short hair. So there's no... Yeah. But think back then now. Think back... I mean, I had I had long hair back yeah. then. Yeah. I mean, like the Beatles were our heroes. And, and, and I mean, I was a bit of a hippie when I was in Trinity. Right? With my combat jacket and my tulips on the back of it. Do you know? Yeah. And then to go from that to... The military who I was trying to disband, you know, it wasn't easy. But the minute, once I got into it, and uh, I enjoyed the group of lads, uh, the 49 that we were with, I liked a bit of discipline. And I loved the, some of the subjects we were doing, you know, and of course the sport. I loved sport. So, I mean, I was playing football every day. I was running every day. I was never as fit in my life. It was wonderful. And that's it. And I lasted. I did 45 years in it. <laughs> So what me up trying to disband the arm. I know to forty five years. The forty five years. So you went from being a rebel to an enforcer. <laughs> but I am no, no. I am a. Somebody said to, even when when I retired after forty five, and I retired on the day forty five years later, right? And I was working right up to that day, and there was a bit of a do. And one of the guys said, "You know, you were always known as a rebel." And I always wore my hair longer in the army than most people. Now, why did I do that? I don't know, right? But I did. And I would never, ever accept somebody telling me to do something unless I knew the reason I was doing it. Ever. And, and by the way, I, I expect no different from people working for me. Mm-hmm. I would never ask anybody to do something that I wasn't willing to do to myself. And I would always explain the, re- the reason that, the reason why we're doing something. And if you have a problem with that, tell me. And we'll, we'll, cons- you know, we'll consider it. So... Yeah, I am a bit of a rebel, yeah. Always have been. I'm proud of it. And that yeah. came from my schooling, by the way. Yeah. That teacher beat me around the place because he was never going to beat me. Mm. Do you know, he was never going to beat me. Yeah. Right, so you're in the army now, Ray, yeah? <laughs> that's, that's the song. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> How do you end up in the role you ended up in? Okay, so uh, in the army, I had a reasonably good leave insert. Uh and my parents couldn't, I wanted to go to university to do science and my parents just couldn't afford it. So the army sent me to Galway University for four years and I did an honours chemistry degree. And when I got out of, when I got out of the uh, Galway University, uh, by the way, paid to go to university with my own car, my own, can you imagine, right? Four years, was the best four years of my life. The Ordnance Corps, who were responsible for bomb disposal, approached me and said, with your chemistry degree, uh, would you be interested in joining the Corps? So I investigated it. And uh, absolutely. I mean, the more I investigated the Corps, and of course, the one thing jumped out at me was bomb disposal and chemistry, the chemistry of explosives. Yeah. Right? And and, and that's how I got into it. But see, you said that, like, you were intrigued by that or interested in the bomb disposal part. Yeah. What part of that is interesting? Uh, I suppose I deal with things in a very uh, uh, systematic way. You know, I, I, I like, as I said earlier on, I like to work out how things operate, take over. And I like to take people on. That comes back from my national school training. So I was aware of what was, uh, in Ireland, what was beginning to happen up north. Yeah. And I was interested in, and I was uh, studying what was going on. And it really intrigued me. And then the Dublin bombings happened in 74. And that, that really had a profound effect on me because I was in Dublin that day. Right. I was in Houston Station and I heard the bangs, right? And after that, I could never, I, I suppose 
I looked into the Dublin bombings in so many different ways and I just said, you know, why weren't they prevented? Who could have done that? How could we stop them? And really, that was that was the drive that got me into. Was that like your call of duty kind yeah, of thing? That yeah, was your call to arms. Yeah, yeah. yeah, without doubt. Yeah. And to this day, I still am terribly interested in the Dublin and Monaghan bombings, not just Dublin bombings. Mm. Dublin and Monaghan, greatest loss of life in the, in the island of Ireland in the troubles. Yeah, because um, there's a lot of Americans who joined the military after nine eleven because yeah. of that. Yeah. They like they turn on the news and you're like, "That's how I knew I was yeah. going to join the army." Yeah. To do yeah. My part. Yeah. Yeah. And. Uh, 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 and out of the Dublin and Monaghan bombings came the whole idea for me of not just dismantling a bomb, even though that's your, you have to do that, but trying to work out who put this together, yeah, why he put it together, and how do you prevent it? And if you don't prevent it, what can you do with what's left over to get that perpetrator? Mm. Okay? So that would be in a huge focus of me. when, And I was then posted into the ordnance school. Then they decided, in their wisdom... We send them to the UK for a year to see what the Brits are doing. So in the middle of the troubles in Northern Ireland, I'm all, I, they send me to the British Bomb Disposal School. And I often tell the story um, that when I arrived out there and it was the 3rd of January, it was, it was snowing, it was cold. And being typical husband um, with a young baby, I never bothered to check up how the heating worked in the house we're going into. And we arrived into a cold house with no heating, no food, no nothing on the base. And my wife said to me, that's fine, Ray, I'm going home tomorrow. I'm going up with this, we'll go home tomorrow. And the doorbell rang. And there's a guy, who was, all I could see was this hat out there with the peak down around here. Opened the door, and this guy's standing there. And he says to me, uh, from Ireland, he said, yeah, my name, he introduced me, and I introduced him. He said, uh, you have no fuel, you have no food. I said, no. He said, okay, I'm back in a few minutes. And he came back with his wife, fuel, put on the fire, got the food going, the whole thing. And when he took off his hat, his face was a mound of plastic. He'd been blown up in a car bomb in Belfast. And I knew all about him because I'd studied him here in my school. So I knew everything about him. I could even tell him, I could have said, I know your wife's name, but I didn't, right? And we became the best of friends after that, right? Amazing, Yeah. right? So I, that was, you know, I, I was, the whole thing was a wonderful experience. Had a few people that didn't like me, but that's the way it goes, mm -hmm. you know, and you try and get around them. So, what is your first day like in the field where you encounter a bomb, right? And yeah, like, right? my first one was a thousand pound kg bomb up on the, on the border, 10 beer kegs full of explosives. Uh, and um, naturally very nervous. Right? What year are we talking here? Oh, uh, you're talking 80, 81. In right. the middle of the, the troubles, right? And what damage could that do? That oh, that could have just... Uh, well, it, <laughs> it did a lot of damage. Bollocks. No, no. No. Oh, my God. A thousand pound kg would destroy a town. Uh, you know, well, I mean, yeah. it would just destroy it. But this was out not too... It, it was close enough to a town, but far enough away. But I flew by helicopter out landed the helicopter, he landed the helicopter and I went out to do my reconnaissance and the whole thing and evacuate the area and the whole business. And I, your first inclination is not to blow something up. Why do what the terrorist wants hit to do? Why would you do that? And if I'm assessing students, as I was years later, if I see a guy going straight in and putting a charge to blow up a bomb that was going to blow up anyway, why would, why would you do that? Mm. So my first idea was to, to mitigate the effects of the bomb. So I carried out a couple of procedures which didn't work, okay, which didn't work. And in the end, I got rid of, I'd say, half the explosive content in these procedures, but I was still left with, with 500 kg. So we just evacuated the area, sandbagged the whole thing and blew it. And the helicopter pilot who was three kilometers away said his chopper nearly lifted off without the engine being on at all because the blast came down a valley, right, and hit him. Now, obviously, it didn't affect anybody, a river that was there, we changed the shape of the river a little bit, but but that was it. And there was nobody killed. So that was my first my first job. Yeah. And you not shitting yourself when you walk up to something like this and be like, I was that day. I was that day. Something wrong here. Well, you're in your bum suit. Yeah. You know, thirty six kg of weight. Well, what's that going to do? When well, you think that's going to save you? Well, well, I tell you what, it's going to do for you. Say the device partially detonated. Say the detonator that's going to initiate the whole thing detonated, that would save you, right? But it's mandatory 
to wear the suit. Mm. Okay? So once you've done your initial uh, work on it, then you can start taking off bits of the suit. So but the suit is very important. Yeah. Very important. If a thousand pounds went up in a suit, I tell you what it does for you. As the, as as the as the designer of the suit said to me, it keeps your body intact. Yeah. So they have a complete body when you're for dead. a funeral. Yeah. yeah, for a funeral. Yeah. So that was that was my first uh, my first job. wasn't brilliant. Uh, wasn't brilliant, but it was a beginning. And how how did you disarm? Uh, for, what you say, five hundred pounds? Thousand kg or five hundred kg? Yeah, five hundred kg. How did you disarm five hundred kg of it? I, I ensured that the initiating system that they were using had been neutralized. So all I'm left with then are containers with explosive in it, right? right? So by using different types of lines and things, I was able to separate the whole lot of them and blow them one at a time. It is complex. So uh, <coughs> I know that, we're only getting into complex now. That's like that isn't that complex, right? You try to mitigate the effect, reduce the effect as much as you can and make sure that everybody's out of the danger area and that nobody gets injured or, or, you know. Yeah. So obviously you are able to tell, like, this is what I do in this situation. After so many years of doing that, you gather, like, oh, I recognise this. This comes from X, Y, or Z. Uh, yeah. And well, are you able to identify people based on bombs you're encountering? Part of my, part of my responsibility further on in my career, uh, when I was kind of a senior bomb disposal guy, would have been intelligence gathering along the border, right? So that would entail meeting some key people. And the idea there was that as the IRA developed their capability and the loyalists developed their technical capability, which, which was developing at an enormous rate now, as that we would try and keep abreast of it. So I would kind of meet certain people at certain times and ask them certain questions, hoping to get information, right? If, it, if they wanted to give you the information, they give it to you. If they didn't, obviously, they just, they wouldn't. And then you also had to work out how much of it was true. So how do you go about having these meetings with these people? I uh, just, I mean, they all know who I am and they, I know who they That's are. That's what I was going you to say. You know what I mean? So you would just go somewhere and leave a, leave, leave word, you know, that you'd be back there on a Saturday night and you'd like to, you know, I, I don't say too much about it, but it, it worked. Yeah. It worked, yeah. It worked. Okay, so... We had a particular guy, anyway, he had developed a very sophisticated system where he was able to launch 25 kg into the air, right, using a a remote means which worked on a time basis so there was nobody at the launching pad, so we couldn't catch anybody, right? But not only could he launch one, he could launch and number them. So he could get maybe up to 250 kg into the air at any one time. And he had a bit of success in Yuri, where, he, where one of these jokes landed on an RUC uh, port cabin and it killed a number of people, including uh, uh, quite a young RUC lady. Now, I went to meet him after that uh, because it was kind of a new development. And... If you knew him, everything he does in life is organized. He is completely organized. Like when I, I said when I met him, when I met him, he'd have his pint of Guinness and his whiskey, right? The first thing he'd do is say, Barman, give me the cloth. And he'd wipe it where the, and they'd nearly be aligned. And he'd take his hat off and he'd put that there, never anywhere else. Perfect alignment. And when he built something, what, what wasn't meant to move didn't move. Straight lines, wires, all araldited into position, everything pristine. The amount of hours it would have spent putting the device, I mean, phenomenal stuff. And anyway, I got something out of him, but the thing that, that really struck home with me was that he, he, there was no sort of forgiveness there or, or empathy, empathy towards. No, no. And as I reminded him, he had a 23-year-old, three-year-old daughter himself. You know, and he put he took his hat off the table, and that's he looked at me and he said, "That's why we'll never be on the same side." And walked out. So then, years later, uh, we had a, a a device found in in Dublin, and one of my guys rang me, and I came up from Nace to look at it in in Coolock Garda Station, and you know, talk about it was all over the place. This device with wires running everywhere, it was just incredible. And I said, "I know who this is." So I was able to ring him 
And um, I said, I'm looking at one of your devices. Because, by the way, this guy's handiwork was perfection. And this thing was everywhere. So this was somebody trying to, who's obviously organized, trying to be disorganized, right? And they go the other extreme. And I knew it was him. So I rang him and, um, yeah, he admitted. And, and he says, do you know something about it? I said, yeah, it won't work. It won't work. And he said, it won't. He says, there's a message here. I said, what's the message? And he said, the message is that we weren't looked after after the Good Friday Agreement. That's, you get that message out there. I said, I'm not a politician. And that was the end of it. Yeah. Yeah. So you were able to identify him. I knew it was him immediately. So you are able to identify people based off their the works? Not always, but a lot of the time. So it's like a signature. It's like a bleeding, a chef or a cake. You're very proud of their work. Yeah. You know, I, you know and, and what made you think that the way this... Sure, it was wild. It was wild. Yeah. It was somebody who, who was going out of their way to be disorganised. And you knew that I straight knew away. Him. I knew it was him. I said kill them to do it. Yeah. But he was getting the message across. Yeah. Yeah. It's mental. Yeah. So, that, so, that, so that's Ireland and we developed a capability in Ireland dealing with IZs that's recognised all over the world. Ireland is recognised and I don't, I'm not just saying this lightly but, uh, as probably one of the best countries in the world for, for bomb disposal and that's why we ended up in Afghanistan um, th- you know that's the reason How does that happen now? So, so you obviously go to Afghanistan then I, I, I did I got a phone call in a pub in Dundalk on a Wednesday night <laughs> at half ten right and I'd been at the Dundalk match Dundalk were playing Rovers I'm a Rovers supporter and the man says to me Ray it was my boss would you go to Afghanistan and I said well <laughs> I said I've been there in 2002 and I've no interest in going back at this age of my life he says a request has come in for the Irish to go back and a number of people have been named in the request you were one of the names so I said when okay when do you want me there? when do they want me there Saturday I said, Saturday, when? Next Saturday, ah, I'll ring you back. So anyway, I rang my wife, uh, late, and she said, well, do what you want to do. And I said, okay. So I rang him back at half one in the morning and said, I'll go, yeah, I'll go. So I was standing in Kabul with my team. I, had a great, I put a great team together. Every guy I rang said he'd go. Every guy. And uh, we were in Kabul late Saturday night, Sunday morning. So I arrived in, uh, the Brits were leaving, they were heading to Kandahar and they had recommended to the Americans, the Irish, take over. And my, the guy I took over from had been with me in England on the course. So I was taking over what was known as the counter-ID branch, countering the improvised explosive device branch. I was the chief operations officer. And he said, Ray, I don't have any time to give you a handover, but I've written down some points here. And he said, all you have to do basically is get this branch up and running because it's not functioning and we're not functioning. And he said, you keep the American general happy because he's a hard man to deal with. I said, that's fine. So I'm still recovering from my, that was Sunday. So Monday morning, Sunday night, an American uh, major comes to me and he says, you're okay for the coup in the morning, Colonel. Should I? I said, what's the coup? He says, you don't know what the coup is? I said, no. It's the commander's update and assessment. And I said, what about it? He said, this is, he said, this is like going to mass in the Vatican. This is, this is televised all over the NATO world. And you're briefing at it. Says, People would die here to brief at it. So, okay. So I said, what am I briefing on? He said, IEDs. So eventually I got my slides for the next morning to brief this four star. And we arrived in this cinema, the biggest cinema I've ever been in in my life. It was unbelievable. And the people who are briefing are all sitting at the front and they're all nervous. Then I'm, I reckon I should be nervous, but I wasn't. And then he arrives in, small man, the hat with the four stars, sits down and says, let's go. So the brief starts and then we get to counter ID. So I stand up to give the brief and, um, and the brief goes on for about eight minutes and then he stops me. And when he gets bored, he does that, you see? So... The week went on and I improved and I improved and, th- and got to know his mindset. And then I got to work in the branch and see. And I mean, in one week we lost, uh, 
13 Canadians and uh, other people, and don't and not to mention the civilian population that were being hammered, right? And I would ha have to go out on a helicopter, travel all over the place, measure the holes, find out why they died, how they died, and then come back then that night, put my report together for the coup in the morning, brief the four-star on what happened the day before. It was always bad news, always bad news. And then go, go to bed at night, go to bed at night, get into the bed at half one and then I had this machine that used to go like that of the beep, beep, beep and every time we lost a NATO soldier that machine beeped. So that was my job the next day back on the ground and that. so it really it, be, it just became too much for me. Yeah. Right? I was getting tired didn't really want to be there and I'm standing up to brief again about the death of five more soldiers that morning and I went through it in detail and, I, and then he, he starts tapping. So you, your time is up. Basically, that's what he's saying. And, as, and you, normally, as, you, know, you normally say, pending your questions, sir. And I didn't. I just said, as I know there are no questions, I won't ask. And I sat down. So McNeil sat, sat there. Now, this giant cinema with all these people around him. And, and the next briefer goes on and he's not listening. You can see it. And then he swings around on his seat and he points his finger at me. He said, what do you mean by that? I said, what, sir? What you just said there? I said, sir, I brief you nearly every morning on the death of NATO soldiers. You never ask me a question. How, why are you not doing your job, Lane? I'm meant to be counter-ID. Why don't you say to me, you're not doing your job? Why aren't you doing your job? You just listen, tap your fingers, and we move on to the next brief. So he swang back to the seat, says, continue with the brief. And the Brit says to me, you're definitely going home, right? So the brief ended. McNeil gets up, he looks at me and he says, my bunker. I went down to his bunker down below and all these American acolytes down there. And, he, and anyway, he just put his hand onto my chest and he buried me. And he, start, he let me have it, and, you know, rightly so. And then he said to me at the end of it, he says, Lane, you're a great man for causing you know, for, for causing me problems. Why don't you give me a few solutions? I said, I would, sir, if you asked. He says, okay, give me them. I said, sir, change your briefing in the morning. Give the counter-ID branch 15 minutes. And then every Sunday, give me 45 minutes and I will run through the IEDs of the week, the threats that the Taliban are developing and how we can mitigate against those. Give me that and, and we'll see an improvement. Done. That's all he said. Done. So I, I, and he looks at me and says, okay. So as I, as I get to the door, he's laying and I look, hey, sir, he said, you ever speak to me like that again? In public, it's Iceland you're going back to, <laughs> not Ireland. Do you understand that? And I was out the door. And we became after that the best of buddies. And then on Sunday, he was getting his 45-minute brief and I would go through the Taliban IEDs. I'd go through how we were going to develop a capability, how we're going to get them. What about the networks? How do we dismantle those networks? Where do we get the information to do it? And, and we built up uh, a significant technical capability. And then we organised, I pointed out, the search new exercises. You know, and again, the Brits weren't happy with the name, but anyway, they went ahead. So we organised these exercises and we put billboards up all over Kabul, we advertised it. We told the locals. We had pictures of locals in, the, in, it, in it. And we ran the exercise. We learned so much from the Afghanis on those exercises. And they learned so much. From, and it developed a relationship. From that relationship, we developed intelligence. From the intelligence, we developed where the bombs were being placed. From that, we were able to dismantle them, find out how they worked, and start catching some of these bad guys and putting them away. Right? Mm. So there's a significant knock-on effect. Yeah. I say... You were saying that you wouldn't be able to take it uh, anymore because like how intense it was. But like you had that machine in your room that beeps every time someone died. Like you know when you go to bed, you put your phone on the locker. Yeah. When that beeps, it's someone sending you a bleeding message yeah. or whatever. Like you're yeah. going to bed and it's beeping. That's a loss of life. You know what I mean? Like it's obviously a lot to take. And, 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 and that's what got me in the end because they weren't just statistics. They were people. People, yeah, yeah. They were people. Were you ever out in the field in Afghanistan? Yeah, disposing, yeah. Like, no, I never dispose of things. No, yeah. but I would always. I mean, I was the boss. Yeah, yeah. So you know, in the films, Ray, the Hurt Locker, 
Well, that's one I was going to use, but is there any film that you know and you look at it and you say, that's exactly what it's like? No. No, it's a whole lot of nowhere near it. No, it was rubbish. Yeah. Yeah, with all due respects. Where did they get it so wrong? The, uh, the, 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 the American um, jingoism and, you know, the way they're going to deal with it and, and then pulling the bomb out and all these bombs pop out. No, 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 no. I mean, it was made for... It was made for the cinema. And they did a good job of it. But the only good thing about it is the Hurt Locker itself, the suit. That's the name of the suit, isn't it? Well, that's what the Americans call it. Yeah. Right. I'm actually the product, I was up to last year, the product ambassador for that suit. That suit's made by a company in Canada called MedEng. And when I retired, they approached me and asked me to become their product ambassador. So they'd send me around to different shows to talk about the suit. Yeah. I never liked this. It's like the jug on a suit our college. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, it's a serious suit. Yeah. It's a serious suit. And um That's why it goes with fucking Tiffany's. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a serious suit and uh, it's 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 it is just a tool in the toolbox of dealing with IEDs. The same way with the robots. Yeah. Right? We have by the way, you know, the what country produces the best robots in the world? Would you think? The States. States. Ireland Ireland we've two robot companies and they're both one in Cork and one in Kerry the one in Cork has been producing robots for the Irish army for over 40 years and when I came back from the course in England and we had purchased two robots from the British army called the wheelbarrow based in Northern Ireland right basic technology now we knew that we had to develop our own so we went down to a factory called Kentry in Cork there was a professor down there called Elgin and who had been designing robots to clean the underneath of oil ships as they moved through, right? And these things were suckers and they were cleaning it and painting at the same time. So we asked him to put something together and he put together what was known initially as the hobo, the hobo uh, robot. And the hobo robot came on station the weekend that John Paul II came to Ireland because I was on duty that day in Phoenix Park with my brand new robot, right? And that was the first time. That has now moved on to the Reacher robot. They're outstanding machines. As I say, without question, the leading country for the development of those machines is Ireland. The reason you don't know that is because we're a neutral country. Mm. Right, so you said the whole lot of a show. Is there any... I didn't say that. Didn't say that. <laughs> I said it's, a, it's valuable. Right. It's valuable, but it takes it out of you. And and let me give you my last bomb disposal call out. Yeah. OK. So it was in Dublin and I was pushing on at this stage, but we had a huge shortage of officers, bomb disposal guys. So I kept going. And one day I went out to deal with a bomb under a car. And I was able to send my robot forward with all its cameras and I could look under the car and I could see where the device was. But the guy who put it under it, knew the limitations of my robot. I couldn't get the arm into it. So I had to suit up in the hurt locker. And when I went forward, it's the first time in my career doing bomb disposal that I wasn't happy. Boy. Don't know, just wasn't happy. And I, got, I knelt down and I put the yoke under it, under and went back, dealt with it and your man stripped me down, my number two stripped me down, the helmet and all the rest of it and I just said to him, it's over. That's it, no more. That was the day you knocked on the head? That was it, it was yeah. finished. Every other time I went out to a bomb, I'd be excited. I mean, I, you know, in control, but excited, looking forward to it, trying to take on what somebody had, and, you know, I loved it. This day, I was not happy at all. So you were doing it for the love of it and the thrill of it then? And then I would say the thrill, yeah. Because, I, yeah, the tr yeah. I often hear footballers to say this, you know, when they touch on and they sign year on contracts yeah. and they're 35, 36 and they're still going and then they'd say there was a moment where they said, I lost the love of it, so I retired. Yeah. But your love of it is disposing laden bombs. My love of it is disposing and then catching the person who put that bomb together. So it's not just disposing of it. I want to dismantle that device in such a way that I break it apart in the same way that he put it together. And hopefully he has left a fingerprint or something in there that I can then exploit and catch him. Mm -hmm. You spoke about the guy earlier in the IRA and his bombs were literally made perfect. What was the difference between the bombs there and in Afghanistan? 
I, I remember saying one day to my four-star general that if I, I could pick 16 IRA guys and bring them out here, we wouldn't have enough in 137,000 soldiers to, to quieten them down because the level of sophistication that the IRA had achieved was unmatched anywhere else in the world. Unmatched. How would you like that Premier level? Division. Premier Division. How did they get it? They By building up key people at key times and giving them specific instructions on what they were to develop. So they started at a low ebb, right? And they lost a lot of people from bombs exploding on them. But they, they knew where they were going, you know, remote, semi-remote, you know, large payload, uh, through the air, stabilised, fin stabilised, all the rest. So they had targets to meet and they had the guys to do it. Mm. They were organised, completely organised. Now, the Taliban, in 2001, I was in Afghanistan on a reconnaissance to see would we send bomb disposal people out there. There was no IEDs in Afghanistan in 2001, right? The year I was there, we could account for 35,000, right? Now, they were not all sophisticated because where would they get the sophistication from? But what they, what they didn't have in sophistication, they made up in quantity. So they would have minefields of IEDs, mm. right? Thousands of them. And eventually they'd wear you down and they'd get you in the end. And uh, there's some very t- tragic cases of bomb disposal officers, both men and women, that went out there and were, were working too hard, if you like, um, before I was out there. And uh, there were, a few of them were taken out. Yeah, taken out. So it's just sheer quantity. Quantity, yeah. yeah. Enormous. Yeah. Uh, IED manufacturing in Afghanistan is cottage industry. So each town would have its own specific expertise and they develop it. And then we'd go in there, we'd analyse what's going on and then we'd take out the key people, right? The next town then, six months later, was developing and they were developing their capability. So it was an ongoing war, but we had some success. I mean, we had some success out there, no question about it. Mm. And, you know, that's why I was so annoyed when they pulled out. Mm. Yeah, just before we get into that part, I want to talk about a uh, film. So, <laughs> you know, when you see it, film, go, you phone, no, you know, someone, find, I don't know, they open up a suitcase and there's a bomb in there and usually it's a timer, it's a load of wires and there's the and red they, and, and the they cut wire. the blue wire. Yeah. How accurate is that? Is well, I mean, it's accurate. It's accurate. I mean, it's accurate from the point of view that uh, you could build a, a fairly basic device with two wires and if you cut one, there's a collapsing circuit in it and you could set it off for sure. For sure. That, that, that's a runner. But the reality is, if they were to use actual devices, IEDs in these films, it would make it far more interesting. But the thing is, they'd have to educate the people watching the film. Yeah. yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like all they're doing, like the Hurt Locker. And by the way, it took me years to watch it. it took me years. I wouldn't, when it came out, first of all, I just, I saw bits of it and I said, this is absolute crap now. And, but, you know, it's for the film. It's for a film. It's a magic effect. Yeah. Yeah. What film for you springs to mind and you'd say, do you know what, they've done that well there. Is there any, or have you got yeah, one? Bomb disposal? Yeah. Or in general? Bomb disposal. I'm trying to think of films now where bombs are going off. Obviously you think of like James Bond, Speed is one as well. I'm trying to think of... Ah, uh, no, the train, Speed, or the no. bus. The bus, yeah. Ah, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, uh, 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 no, 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 no. No. And, they, and, no, and they could really make it. I mean, if they wanted to, they could make a fact. But it goes back to my point that we were talking on earlier on before this. Would it keep people interested? Yeah. That's the key. Would it, would it keep people interested? I mean, to go back to the, the bomb in Kulak and the wires all over the place. Right, so we have that in the film. People are looking at this saying, geez, where's the sense in this now? But, but however... If I had a timer on and it was taken down, it's more interesting. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And their sweat's pumping out of the guy yeah. and you've only two minutes to go and no, 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 I know. Have you ever encountered a bomb with a timer on it like that? Yeah. So you can see it ticking down so you know when this is going off kind of thing? Yeah, but you've, you, you do, but you've also, alongside you, you've your equipment to deal with it. Just, if you haven't managed to mitigate it, right, you've got your equipment there ready to blast it before it goes. I don't like how much I downplaying it. It's a fucking bomb, like. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? You're just like, ah, yeah, like it's... Like, there's a timer on it, it's grand. Like. No, but... I'm like, that's a whole bomb, like. But it all goes back to training. Everything in bomb... Not just bomb disposal. Everything in life goes back to training. Like, the guys, bomb disposal guys who are being trained 
in our school, you would want to see what they go through. You know, they talk about the SAS and, and, and their training and this type of thing. You'd want to see the, the training that these guys go through. And I mean, I was the boss. I was, you know, responsible for the curriculum, responsible for passing guys or failing guys. I'd never pass a guy that had a question mark of any description. I mean, there's one exercise on the bomb disposal course that goes on for 72 hours. And in that 72 hours, they don't sleep. And they're exposed to maybe 15 or 16 IEDs. Highly sophisticated. And you've got to use this. Mm. Right? And they're being watched, monitored, you know. And then some guys will say, well, I'm making a decision. I'm going to pull back because, you know, I'm too tired to deal with it. As written down in the instructions, you know, I'm too tired to deal with it. And then, then I'll come in and say, it's category A incident. There's people's lives at stake here. There's a hospital there. We can't move those people out of the hospital. You're in a hospital ward with this bomb. This goes off, these people die. What are you going to do? And you get, and they have to go in and they have to do it. And, you, and you're watching them, you're reading them, you're, you know, it's, it is, the training is phenomenal. And then they go back after three years to be retested, retrained. It's hard going. I'd say so, yeah. Oh, it's hard going. Yeah. They're great guys. They're absolutely fantastic guys. But I say you just become conditioned to it. That's why, like, like nothing seems to really, it doesn't phase you. And the fact you were like, oh, I just lost the love of it. And you're like, how does that become a... And you know, a, and I'm thinking oh. of it now, the reason I lost, and I, I lost the love of it because I was getting older. And I was, for the, the week before, would you believe I had to, I was told I needed glasses. Mm. Right. Now, and then, you know, the visor on the hurt locker, that particular day, it started to, to steam up on me because the fan at the back wasn't working. So now I had the problem with my eyesight and the steaming up on the visor. And I just said, you know, this is, it's over. Yeah, but this the fact that you're gone. conditioned to like, this is where I get my kicks. Ah, yeah, Disposing bleeding bombs. Like. Um, you said uh, you weren't happy with them pulling out of Afghanistan. No, no I, I was, no, I, I was not. And, you know, it's on record because I, 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 I sent my medal back to the American embassy. What did you get the medal for? Af Af service in Afghanistan, NATO medal. Yeah. Which, which is interesting when you think Ireland's a neutral country. And that's another thing here. We're a neutral country. Right? Neutral. And yet we're, we're running one of the major uh, uh, structures in Afghanistan for NATO, the counter-ID branch, which is huge. Right? Um, anyways, we were in Afghanistan. I could see progress in Afghanistan. Um, and my view is, if you commit yourself to helping people, you stay there. Now, for Biden, and I know it was Trump before that, to make that decision overnight, I just thought it was... I thought it was, I thought it was horrendous. And on the Monday, I, I did a bit on RTE and I predicted that there'll be an explosion in the international airport and NATO troops will, will, will be killed. By the end of the week, I said, and what happened on Friday morning? Bang, 13 Americans blown away. Blown away. Because there was no planning. The decision politically was made to pull out. So they all said Kabul airport, which is a mess, right? Whereas if they had gone to Bagram, the other side, the Americans had the biggest base you've ever seen up there with the best security possible. Why didn't they? I couldn't understand it if they had to pull out, but they shouldn't have gone. It was uh, deplorable. How can we believe a country from now that says we're here for good? We're going to make your life better. You'll all have a job. We'll have schooling for the kids and all that. And then you just pull out. Mm -hmm. So you sent your medal back. Uh I did, yeah. You said you also had disagreements with the general and how you, you think that they're fighting on two wars. No, there was two, two yeah, there was, there was two wars out there. There's the, the conventional war of your F-16s, as I said to him, your aircraft carriers and your tanks. Okay. But like, we're talking about the Taliban and I can't, I don't think the Taliban had tanks that I know of or F-16s and they certainly hadn't got aircraft carriers, Right. But what they had was the capability to manufacture 35,000 devices that we know of that in that year. So why would you put all your energies into that side of the, of, of the war? So I go back to my point. When I'd be briefing him and he'd be tapping his finger, when I finished and sat down, it was a one-star American general who gets up then and he says, well, sir, we launched 16 B-1B bombers last night 
and we, we put 36 F-16s into the air. Uh, drones, I mean, the, it was like an Avery, the names and the drones. I used, to, I used to run out of, uh, try to work out where the drones were all over Afghanistan, right? And you, I'm sitting back listening to this and we're the one that are dealing with the casualties. And these are the guys who are out for the glory. It was crazy stuff. Yeah, so that's the thing. They're fighting a conventional war against guerrilla warfare. They're, they're fighting, they're using an army to fight against exactly. a militant group. They're yeah. not fighting an army with an army. Exactly. And if we've learned nothing from Northern Ireland, when you're dealing with a very effective uh, uh, non-conventional force, the only way to take them on is by non-conventional means. And, and I'll sum it up for you like this. At the end, when I was leaving Afghanistan, uh, McNeil, the boss, said to me, I want you to give a brief, Ray, uh, uh, your final brief. Because I was, it was a Sunday and I was flying out on the Sunday, I said, they can't lock me up. I, I, you know, <laughs> you know I'm going to, this is going to, you know, I'm going to tell the truth here. So anyway, got in and I had to do, would you believe, I had to do a rehearsal first with a German three-star general before my boss arrived in. So what I did was I had two briefs. So you put on one brief for the rehearsal, right? And then I had another one for the, for the big show, you see. So anyway, I gave the brief and the German three star. Oh, very good. Yes, yes, yes. Maybe you shouldn't say that there. Maybe. Yes, that's very good. Excellent brief. Thank you. And then in comes the four star and I go up to the American sergeant and said, don't show that brief. And he looks at me. I said, that's an order. Right. So he puts <laughs> it in. So up comes my first slide and the German goes, you can see him thinking, this is not what I, what I agree to at all. I went through counter ID, how to stay alive in, a, in an IED-rich environment, right? And I said, when I came out here initially, everything was technology-based. I said, leaving here today, I'm glad to say it's 50% technology, 40% tactics, techniques, and procedures, non-technological, and 10% Murphy's Law. So anyway, the very last slide, uh, the second last slide said, how to win the war. And McNeil says, I'm looking forward to the next one here, Ray. Mm -hmm. And I said, next slide, please. Give the Taliban PowerPoint. Because when you're out there, everything is PowerPoint. The only question you're ever asked during the day is how many slides? That was it. So I said, give the, give the Taliban PowerPoint. And surely they can't beat us. We're so good at PowerPoint. Well, McNeil thought this was hilarious, right? And when he thought that was hilarious, the German thought it was hilarious. hilarious yeah. well. So that was it. So just on that, um, technology, uh, situational awareness and where advanced situational awareness, how we train the brains as opposed to technology out there. Mm -hmm. I am a great believer in teaching people to train their brain to see things, right? Absence of the normal, presence of the abnormal. Absence of the normal, presence. If it doesn't look right, it isn't right. So we used to train people in identifying unusual signs, structures, things that were going on that are abnormal, and they'd follow it. And the results we got with that were absolutely phenomenal. So an example would be, we taught people how to identify suicide bombers by virtue of the fact that they're bulky, slightly bulky. Then the Taliban adapted. They started using these slimline uh, suits. We were able to come up with a, mitigate, uh, a procedure to deal with that. And on and on and on it went. <laughs> you done some... Um, testifying against war criminals as well. We did. I spent 1992, I was out in Bosnia uh, with the European Union. So in we went anyway. And of all the mission areas I've been in, Somalia, Lebanon, Afghanistan, Bosnia was the worst by a mile. I've, I've never experienced anything like it in my life. So you go to Bosnia. Why, how come you're sent over there and what's going on over there? In, in 90, 1991, uh, with, the, with the breakdown of the Soviet Union, the, Europe was changing, right? And there were fracture lines all over Europe. And one of those fracture lines was in Bosnia-Herzegovina, not just Bosnia. So in Bosnia-Herzegovina, you have Serbs, Croats, and Muslims. So all three factions started fighting against each other. Now, it's hard to, hard to understand it, that they had lived together for hundreds of years with no problem. And then overnight, overnight, Villages were fighting villages. So if you can imagine, Tala was fighting Nace. Nace was fighting Newbridge, right? With some of the most horrendous atrocities that you have ever seen. 
So the European Union, back in 92, in 91, sent out people initially to Bosnia-Herzegovina and, and two of those guys were killed. They withdrew their people after the death of those two guys and then they put in a new mission, which I led, in 1992. So we went in to Bosnia-Herzegovina and then I put my people all over reporting back to me on what was going on in, in, in the whole area, in the region. So we found concentration camps. We found uh, people mutilated in the most horrendous ways that you can think uh, on, a, on a daily basis. So I used to have guys working for me and I could only keep them three weeks. And then they had to, we pushed them out of Bosnia then because that's all they'd last. Now we lasted eight months Myself, my deputy, and I had a driver, Tony, from the Czech Republic. And I think this will sum it up for you. There's a town in Bosnia called Gorni Vakuf. It's in the centre of Bosnia. And it's the crossroads of Bosnia. All the roads from Sarajevo down go through uh, Gorni Vakuf. So we had been told that a certain general had moved against the population of Gorni Vakuf. So I got into my car, my armoured Merc, in Mostar with Tony. And we drove through Mostar. Now, every bridge in Mostar had been destroyed. At this, There was only one bridge left, right? And to get across, what you had to do was you rev the engine, you waited till they stopped firing, you hoped they stopped firing, and you basically hit the bridge to the far side and then went in behind a wall then as the rockets came over, right? So we did that. And I get on the road then to, to up to Sarajevo, stopped by all these armed checkpoints, all... A lot of them drinking, a lot of them out of their heads, right? Talking away. And I arrived in Gorni Vakuf. And I'm on, Gorni Vakuf is in, it's surrounded by mountains. And I am on one of these mountains looking down at the town. And all I can see is tank fire and artillery fire going into the town. Round after round after round after round. So then I drive down with my EU flags flying in my nice white car, right? Hoping that they won't fire through the town. And all you can see are dead bodies, dead animals, um, horrendous situation. So over the next 72 hours, I set up an office down there. I tried to get the two, the warring factions to the table. And then I would draw up a list then of items, like an agenda of what we're going to discuss. So obviously the first item on the agenda was to bury the dead. So we couldn't reach agreement on how we were going to do that. So the, I made a decision. I said, okay, what we'll do is we'll go out in my car with my nice flags on it. We'll pick up the body of a child. We'll take it to the local soccer pitch and we'll bury that child in that soccer pitch. And whatever side that child is buried is that religious side. And then the other can have the other side. Are we agreeable by that, to that? So they all agreed to that. So we went out, picked up this child's body, dug it in January, trying to dig a hole. Jesus, buried the child. And then the other, the other, the others then would be on the far, on the other side. So that progressed over periods of time. So if you, every aspect of life that you can think of that's normal to you, we are now trying to bring to Gorni Vakuf: food, electricity, schooling, water, everything you can think of, and then trying to bring both fractured societies together some way. So we brought a degree of normality back to Garni Vakuf. The people responsible for the horrendous murder and atrocities up there are the people I was given evidence against in The Hague. So you were basically going from one situation to another, trying to report it back to Zagreb. But the one thing I did do is I brought diaries with me and I kept very detailed notes every day on who I met, what I saw, some of the horrendous stuff we saw. And um, I built up a, a catalogue of diaries and then I presented them to, to the EU when I left. You have kids yourself, Ray. Yep. What was it like to see dead children and stuff over there? Nobody wants to see it. Mm. Nobody wants... To, no, no, I mean, horrendous. 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 Yeah, yeah. Mm. What's it like to see it? Nobody should see it. Mm. Everybody should see it. Nobody should see it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I get you, yeah. I know what you're saying. It was horrendous, yeah. Yeah. Bosnia to me was... And I, when I came out of Bosnia, I was a mental case. 
I could, I was dreaming. I had the most, the worst nightmares you've ever had. I, I mean, it was horrendous. My father uh, remarried while I, and I was best man. So I, had, I came home for the wedding and my mother died a few years before that. And I was picked up in Dublin airport and they brought me to their new apartment and, you know, take me around. I got violently ill in the apartment. And the reason I got sick was because everything was so pristine. Mm. And then at the wedding then, I said my few words. And then my wife said to me, um, you know, you need to go back to Bosnia. I was home for 10 days. I was meant to be home. She says, you know, you need to go back soon. But when you come back in May, Ray, have that out of your system. Mm. So I went back the next day. <laughs> and when my driver met me in, uh, in Split, he says to me, welcome back to the family, Mr. Lane. I mean, I mean, it was horrendous. And when I got home, um, I got home then, and you're on your month's leave, all I could do every day was, I used to get up and go running until I couldn't run anymore. And then, uh, I don't know how my wife stuck me. And I know how she propped me. Yeah. Because yeah, I was... I was a bit shocked when you said Bosnia was the worst. By a mile. Afghanistan. But remember, I was unarmed. I was a diplomat, believe it or not. You probably find that hard to believe. I wasn't military. I was a diplomat. Yeah. Right? So I was going around in this beautiful white car with these blue flags flying. So important, right? And <laughs> oh, I have so much to learn. Uh, and not supported by a lot of the organizations out there, particularly some religious organizations were not supporting us. And I went, I, I was worried about the safety of my people because uh, one night we had all our windows shut out and our car shut up and the whole business. And I said, next, I'm going to lose people here. So I went to some influential leaders out there looking for support and I never got it. Mm. So this all came full circle then. Years later, you see, years had passed now and I, I had been in Afghanistan, leaving Afghanistan. I get the note from the Department of Foreign Affairs. You will now not ask me, would I, but you will testify in the war crimes tribunal in The Hague. So I went basically Afghanistan, Dublin for a couple of days and back to The Hague. I mean, it was just pure madness. So I arrived in The Hague on a, on a Saturday and they brought me into a room and all my diaries are there that I had built up over the, over, the, over the period of time. Now, many years later, 16 years or something. And um, I said, when am I on? Monday morning. <laughs> and I said, and I want to read it. So they gave me a couple of hours. And, and as I read it, I realised that they, they had changed some of my evidence. So where I would have said no may, might have been changed to maybe no, and I, I absolutely wasn't happy at all. So I go in on Monday morning into the, into the court. And it's a daunting experience because you're not allowed any notes. Right? So you're brought in, you're sat down, the three judges in front of you. Over here you have the, 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 the guys I'm giving evidence against. And then you have their defence, their teams then, defence teams in front of them. And over here you have the prosecution and his one or two aides. So Monday kicked off and Judge uh, Robinson introduced me and you have a big glass wall behind you and behind that are people who've survived what I'm, you know, some of the stuff I'm going to give evidence on. And this guy, Michael Cavernus, is the lead for the defence. And who was he? Oh, he was, I mean, I've never in my life seen anything. I ha what was he famous for? He was a, he was a part of the O.J. Simpson uh, case, right? <laughs> <laughs> so he bet into me started at nine finished at six we had a break for lunch for half an hour and he destroyed I was just destroyed I was absolutely I mean no bomb has ever had that effect on me R truly right and then you start doubting yourself and I, I, anyway he jumps up to, to the judges and particularly Robinson and he says Judge Robinson we want to congratulate Mr. Lane on doing a great job in Bosnia and Afghanistan and Lebanon and wherever else you've been, in a real cynical way, you know. And he said, but really, we don't need him back here tomorrow. I asked him four key questions and I didn't get a, a, a proper reply to any of those. So I don't think, he, with all respect to Mr. Lane, I don't think uh, uh, there's any point coming back tomorrow. And the three judges are there and you can see they're listening to this because I didn't do well, right? And... Um, I'm saying to myself, oh yeah, please, don't bring me back tomorrow. Please don't bring me back. And then I'm saying, these people behind me, and I'm saying, oh yeah, bring me back tomorrow. Bring me back. Mm. Anyway, Robinson then finally says, no, we're going back tomorrow morning. We're back here. Everybody back. 
So I went back to The Hague, dark in car with my own security people in The Hague, back to the hotel, snuck out of the hotel in my running gear, out the back, out onto the beach, and I ran and ran and ran and ran, which I often do when I'm trying to figure something out. And slowly but surely, the brain starts ticking over. And then I'm back in Bosnia. And I'm back to what he... And I'm back to those questions. And, and I'm back to the hotel. Can't, I'm so excited, I can't sleep. So I'm writing down and then picked up that morning, brought back, and we're back into the chamber. And Kaverin is sitting there with his people. And I said, I'd like to judge, can I speak? And please, Mr. Lane. I said, I'd like to go back to Mrs. Kaverin's four questions. And he jumps up and he said... No, your honours, he, he had the opportunity, fail. And I just looked at him and I said, sit down, counsel. Right? And Robinson said, Mr. Laney of the day. So I spent the day and the next day and the next day and the next day. Mm. So that was it. So case finished. And Friday had doctors and psychiatrists there. And I'm back in this small room and uh, drinking a cup of coffee. And the psychiatrist is there and says to me, how are you feeling now, Mr. Lane? Well, I said, I tell you. I'm feeling good that this is over. For that. And he said to me, and but how are you really feeling? I said, yeah, I'm grand. He says, you mightn't realise, but you're after spilling all your coffee over your shoes. <laughs> and I looked at my hands and they were like that. Trembling. Yeah. yeah, trembling. Yeah, trembling. So that night, I go out for a meal, right? Into a restaurant. Relax, have a few pints. And who walks in? Cavernous. With a friend of his. And he sees me. And I didn't want to be uh, rude and, and ignore him. So what could I do but invite him to the table? So he joins us. And then he gave me the whole strategy for the week. They knew I had come out of Afghanistan. They knew I wouldn't have time to read the notes. Destroy me on the Monday and there'd be no Tuesday. And he said, when you told me to sit down on the Tuesday, I sent a note to all my people and said, it's over. And the interesting thing about uh, that case also, the people I gave the evidence against also had other legal people, but nothing in Cavernous League. One of them, one of the guys there, never cross-examined me. And when I finished my evidence, and they were gone, you know, he came up and came down and, and shook my hand. And he said to me, I remember what you said to me out there. And I had said to him that if there is ever a court, in the unlikely event that there's ever a court, I will ensure that you're brought to justice even though I like him as, as, as somebody and I, you know, I, I, I got to meet his family and the whole business, but I get you in the court if there is a court. And he never, they never cross-examined me, just took it. Mm. Were you getting escorted to and from that trial? No. Well? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, for, because My own safety case. issues. Like, yeah, yeah. Because mm. of these people that you are standing up against. Certain countries I can't go to, I'd say now. Yeah. yeah. I'm not going to name them. Mm. Right, before we wrap up, just, uh, you were working on counter-terrorism training. Yeah, in, 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 our progress from counter-ID moved into, we were looking at terrorism then in the broader scale and we were looking at where the, where terrorists would move into the future because you have to be ahead of these boys. You have to be one step ahead, yeah. So before what happened in Charlie Hebdo and all these other things, we had developed a course in the Curragh called Counter-Marauding Terrorist Attack Course. And this is where the, the terrorist doesn't mind dying and wants to inflict as much damage on, on us as possible. So what we did was we developed scenarios and we brought in the whole area of bio chemical, biological, nuclear devices. We manufactured simulated chemical bio to see the effect they would have on... To, I mean, it's, uh, it's fri frightening stuff, right? Frightening stuff. But, but those courses were supported by NATO and we had over 49 countries in Ireland partaking of those courses. They were a great success. Mm. So that's where the, the next big threat actually lies well out of that then I, I'm always concerned I think there's a huge amount of work has been done on radiological nuclear and I don't think we need to worry about too much but the whole area of biological threat to me is, yeah. is where we're at so in 2012 I went to University College Galway where there's a professor down there uh, Lokesh Yoshi is his name who's working on on developing capability for, for, for biological so he's developed a natural product, and it was and so useful during COVID, by the way, that you can actually nearly drink it. It's completely natural, but it removes the, the pathogens from your skin, right? 
But the, the important point behind it is, do you remember I mentioned the mobile laboratory to you? Yeah. Mm. You can take that to the laboratory and analyze it. So it's actually locked like Velcro into a wipe and you bring it to your laboratory. Oh, so it takes it out of your skin and then you can see actually what was in your skin then. Exactly. Oh, I even bought one for you here. I have one here for you to give you. I don't yeah. want to know what's in it. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, well, I'm not going to tell you. That's for sure. But it, you can, it, the effect it has on your skin is, I mean, it's a natural product. And um, even with people with asthma who are suffering from skin diseases, it is actually, a, the, the effect on it is actually positive. Yeah. So it's an amazing capability. Mm. So that's where I am today. Brilliant. So we won't keep you much longer, right? Because we know you have a uh, reservation. I thought you were going to say date. Right, we wrap this one up then, Terry. Yeah, perfect, yeah. Thanks, right, very thanks much for coming in, in like. to us, right? I really do appreciate it. Um, I'm sure, believe me, we only scratch the surface with our stories as well. Yeah. My nerves are gone, my palms are sweating. I felt like I was watching a blade and film, for fuck's yeah. sake. All right, then we'll okay. wrap this one up. We won't keep it much longer. Take us out there, Chris. Boom. Subscribe to this podcast for free on the Go Loud app. What you waiting for? Put your back in it. Just a little more. Throw your in the now. Fill your body up in. Walk it high and low. When you finish that. The hip knocker. Go down, go down, go down.